Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Woo! It is here. Um, excuse me. Thank you for joining me this Tuesday, February 28th. It is the day that we have been working up to for a very long time. It is election day. If you live in, there are certain suburbs where you need to go to the polls. A lot of uh, places in Lake County go to the polls in Naperville, go to the polls in Palatine, and of course, in Chicago. In Chicago, where we are voting for who will probably be in the runoff for for mayor, the chances of somebody getting 50% plus one, slim and none. We are voting in the aldermanic races. (laughs) You have, well, some people are running unopposed, but you have about 175 people who have decided that the city council is where they want to be. So uh, check that out. And you are also going to be voting for three people to join your local police district council. Okay? If you live in the city of Chicago... That's what's on the ballot. As my son lives in the city proper, and he said, uh, he texted me a picture of his I have voted card, and he said, he said it was the shortest ballot he had ever filled out in all of his many 10 years of voting. But he voted. Good for him. I hope you are also not only voting yourself, but finding out if friends family, siblings, kids, aunts, uncles, neighbors, are they voting too? Does somebody need help? Is somebody saying, well, you know, I just don't, I don't have a car today. I can't, I can't get over there. Well, I could drive you. How about that? Let's practice these things. I could drive you. The better the turnout, the better the election. That's my belief. Shia Kapos in today's... Well, let me tell you first before we get into the the details. Let me tell you how today is going to work. I am going to talk a little bit about the races. Um, As a matter of fact, we are going to be talking to another local school board candidate. Because those are important. Democrats took their eye off the ball... Republicans couldn't seem to defeat Democrats on the big stage. So what did they do? They went to the little stages. They started taking over state legislatures. And you know what? When you control the state legislature, you have a lot of power and you can put gerrymandering in place. You can put voting restrictions in place. And then all of a sudden you're winning all the races, even though you're a minority party. Hmm. School boards, Republicans are targeting them. Far-right groups are targeting them. Don't ignore those races. And uh, we'll see if this happens. Uh, but at 2.45 today, we are supposed to get a real quick interview with Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who uh, also wants to remind you that if you haven't voted, you need to get out and do it. Then um, we are going to spend some time looking at the world stage. Not everybody who listens to this radio station lives in the city of Chicago. So from, um, let me see, 
From 3 to 4 today, we're going to be talking to Professor William Muck. He is a political science professor. He His expertise is international stuff. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what we see on the world stage. You know, there's some really interesting things going on. I haven't talked to um, William Campbell for a while. Some really interesting things going on in the United Kingdom. Um, then maybe we can ask uh, Professor Muck to bring us up to speed on that. And then starting at 4 o'clock, we are going to um, start talking to local elections again. We have a number of people who are out and about today at various campaign headquarters or traveling between. Um, we tried to assign a reporter to every one of the major candidates so um, Jerry Riles is going to be at Mayor Lloyd Lightfoot's campaign headquarters tonight. Steve Lessman is going to be with Jesus Chuy Garcia. George Bliss is going to be at Paul Vallis. Rich Eberwine is going to be at Brandon Johnson's headquarters. And Cameron Costanzo is going to be at the headquarters for the Reverend Dr. Willie Wilson, as um, Eric Zorn likes it when I call him that. So it's going to be a real interesting night. Hopefully, toward the end of the show, we can touch base with some of these folks and um, and see what's going on. A lot of the campaign quarter headquarters, uh, interestingly enough, decide not to open their, whether it's a, at a restaurant or at a hotel or whatever. A lot of the candidates this time around have decided that they're not going to let reporters in until a six or later. So uh, we'll see what's going on. We may possibly know more tonight about the aldermanic races than we do about the mayor's race. Because as Shia Kapos reported in today's Illinois playbook after talking to the Board of Elections, 100,843 mail-in ballots are still outstanding. So the Board of Elections knows they sent them out, and as far as they can tell, they're not in yet. You have, if you have a mail-in ballot sitting on your kitchen table, you have two choices. You can still go to a polling place and you can vote in person, but you have to bring the mail-in ballot with you. Because they will know when you check in, they will know that you've been sent a mail-in ballot. And here's the thing. You're not allowed to vote twice. I know this may be shocking to you, but you're not allowed to vote twice. So if they see you have been sent a mail-in ballot, they're not going to let you vote in person. The way you do that is you bring the mail-in ballot with you. Let's say you just didn't get around to it, or it's more fun to vote in person, or maybe you made a big mistake. Maybe you spilled coffee all over it, uh, and you just don't think the ballot will get counted. Go to the polling place in person, bring them the mail-in ballot, hand it to them. They know what to do with it. They have a procedure for making sure it gets destroyed, making sure that you do not vote twice, and then they will uh, let you go vote in person. If you have a mail-in ballot that is uh, signed, sealed, and all but delivered, 
or you're going to sit down and do it in the next couple of hours, walk it over to the post office. As long as your mail-in ballot is postmarked today, February 28th, as long as it says that on the envelope, it will get counted. Okay? That's why it could take a while in this very crowded field for mayor to find out who our two runoff candidates are going to be. You know, Marianne Ahern reported uh, last week that the Board of Elections is saying, you know, uh, we might not have all the results for two weeks. March 14th could be the day when we finally know who are the two runoff candidates. Paul Vallis um, seems to be far enough ahead that he may have enough votes tonight to ensure a spot in the runoff. If at some point... When they've counted everything they've got so far, if he's like at 35 percent, then you can you can put money on the fact that he's in the runoff. But the people who are in that second tier, Lori Lightfoot, Brandon Johnson, Jesus Chuy Garcia, they have been running neck and neck and neck. And it is quite possible we will not have a clear choice anytime soon. We're going to keep an eye on the Board of Elections site. Hopefully, um, we will have some interesting numbers to share with you. But don't be surprised at all if there is no final decision, even even at 10 o'clock tonight when we are slated to go off the air. By the way, the way we're going to do this is uh, Patty Santita and I, we're going to cross-pollinate a little bit, but we are going to have chunks of time that are just ours. Santita is going to kick things off at, um, at seven o'clock. I'm going to pick up the mantle at seven 30. Um, then I'm going to hand it off to Patty Vasquez, probably about seven 50. She and I will start blathering with one another. Uh, she's going to do the next half hour. Then Santita's back at 8.30, I am back at 9 o'clock, and Patty Vasquez is back at 9.30. It is, um, it's going to be interesting, Chicago politics at its finest. This is one of the most interesting elections we've had in a very long time. They're all fun, but this one has an extra, extra level of excitement. And questions. Anyway, um, I've got more information to give you, but um, let's get a quick break under our belt, and we'll be back with more after this. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. You're listening to The Joan Esposito Show, live, local, and progressive. Brought to you by Fazio Insurance, an independent insurance agency serving residents and businesses in Will and DuPage counties since 1953. It is election day. You have been waiting for this. Either waiting, looking forward to it, or just waiting for it to be over. Either one is acceptable. Um, we are going to be following all the mayoral frontrunners. We've got a few people who may bounce into and out of some of the aldermanic races. We've had a lot of people leave city council. Tom Tunney's retiring. Kappelman's retiring. Hairston's retiring. 
Um, uh, Sophia King and Rod Sawyer left to run for mayor. Other candidates, uh, other aldermen have um, run for different offices, county offices, state offices that they will be taking over. And a lot of the regular alder people who have been ensconced for a while are simply facing challengers. There's really a small handful of people who are running unopposed in um, in the election today for uh, some of the aldermanic seats. They are few and far between. So um, with the help of the wonderful aldermanic race roundup um, that Justin Kaufman put out on Axios, we're going to try to keep an eye on that and the Board of Elections and everything else that has uh, that is going on all things election. So far, the Board of Elections tells us that as of, I guess, last night or this morning, 244,580 ballots have been cast. That was as of yesterday. Four years ago, on the day before the election, okay, yesterday, the tally was 244,580 votes cast, ballots cast. Four years ago yesterday, at this same time, that number was 165,025. So what does that mean? Does that mean that more people are turning out than ever before? It could mean that. Does it mean that more people have decided that rather than fight the Tuesday crowds, they would rather vote early or vote by mail could mean that, too. So we won't know the overall tally. We won't know whether this has been a huge turnout race until we get the final numbers, whenever that is. Just um, a couple of points. If you haven't gone to the polls yet, please remember you can do same-day registration. Have a couple of pieces of ID, and you can register, and you can vote. Polls are supposed to close tonight at 7 o'clock. Usually one or two polling places open late, and they might stay open a few minutes late. I uh, have to do an update on the Board of Elections site to see if that's going on anywhere. But if you are in line to vote and 7 o'clock rolls around, you get to vote. What the uh, polling places will do is at 7 o'clock, they will go to the end of the line and they will put a person or a sign that's a placeholder that says this this person in front of this person or this person in front of this sign is the last person to vote. So if you show up at 7.05 or 7.10, you're out of luck. But if you're there at 6.58 and you jump in line, even if the line is 20 minutes long, you Get to vote. We say this every election, but some people still are confused by it. And the worst thing is, is if you are trying to vote somewhere where the poll workers are confused by it. If a poll worker tells you to go home that you can't vote and you were in line before seven o'clock, you tell them they are mistaken that everybody who's in that line gets to vote. And the way they're supposed to do that is they do something to mark off. 
the you know they're out there at seven o'clock. Okay, bell rings. Who's ever last in line at that moment? That's the last person who gets to vote. Okay. We have a really interesting day. Politics, um, local, national, international, uh, coming up for you today. And we are probably going to just keep the phone lines open, uh, depending upon what you want to talk about and who we're, you know, we probably won't take any calls in the 15 minutes that we're talking to Mayor Lloyd Lightfoot. But if you have a question or a comment, feel free to call or text me 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. Um, I see, uh, we have Jim on the line already. Um, Jim calling in from Chicago. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Joan. There's two exceedingly cruel things going on. You've got the Supreme Court who apparently thinks they're economists and they want to uh, deny the people the ability to forgive their loans, which would be a big boom for our economy. Apparently, they don't think so. The other one is the insane judge down in Texas, who apparently never took the Hippocratic Oath, because I think the Hippocratic Oath do no harm, and this person is going to do exceedingly harm. Two absolutely cruel and insane cases going on simultaneously. And the other ones, I heard a hint that they were going to, Cut food stamps under six dollars a day. Republicans are all excited about that. Uh, so uh, Ebenezer lives in in reign supreme. Anyway, yeah. you know, the, the two the two places are just insane. The, you know why? Why do the Supreme Court think they're economists? I have no idea. And this judge thinks he's a doctor down in Texas. Anyway, yep, I know. Um, what Jim's talking about is there are reports that it, today is the day the Supreme Court is hearing arguments um, against President Biden's plan to cancel some student debt. And um, they've uh, somebody took it, of course, a Republican took it to the court. And uh, according to the questioning, because, you know, the it takes them a long time to put out a ruling. But people who watch the court all the time read the tea leaves. What kinds of questions did they ask? Were they mean? Did they seem doubting? Well, the report is that the justices, at least the conservative ones, in their questioning today seemed very skeptical of the Biden plan to forgive some student debt. And, you know, that judge down in Texas who is uh, toying with issuing a ruling that would, at least for a short time, affect women nationwide? He's he he wants to rule that uh, even though they were the drugs have been approved for decades, that somehow the FDA didn't do its job when it came to um, mifepristone, and uh, therefore it should it should lose its uh, approval. Again, what Jim said this. This guy has no medical training, but he is a far-right Trump-appointed judge known for his radical anti-abortion views. This is why it drove me crazy when everybody was so sure that Hillary Clinton was going to win, that they didn't feel like they had to vote for her. Well, you know, I don't really like her. I don't really like her personally, so I'm going to vote for some other Looney Tune or I'm just going to stay home. 
And one message that Democrats were trying to get out, even if you personally are not in love with Hillary Clinton, you need to vote for a Democrat for president because Republicans will wreak havoc on the courts. And nobody paid attention to that. Oh, the courts, they're not. They've always been and they always will be. Nothing's going to change. Nothing is going to change. Um, We'll get a quick call from uh, Brenda Washington, who is an election judge in Bellwood. Brenda, what do you want to share with us? Hi, Joe. How are you doing today? Good. Um, Joe, you said one thing that um, I think you made a mistake. If I received a mail-in ballot and I came to vote today, what would happen is uh, if I didn't bring that ballot with me, I still would let you vote. But you would be able to vote as a provisional. Um, oh, oh, yeah. We don't know if you mailed it in or not. Okay, yes. But the the ballot has to be returned and destroyed before your vote gets counted. Right. Right. Yes. We're let you vote no matter what. We got okay, good, good technical question. So if you show up and you've got that, if, and you're like, oh, God, I left the ballot on the kitchen table. What she's saying is you can vote, but it isn't going to count until they know where that mail-in ballot is and they know the Bingo. fact that they have it back in their hot little hands. Bingo, right. Hey, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that clarification, Brenda. I appreciate it. Okay, Joe. Okay. okay All righty. Okay, as I told you, uh, in addition to you know the races that we are all entranced by, the aldermanic races, the mayoral races, there are some really important school board races that are going on. One of those areas is uh, District 214. District 214 encompasses a number of communities, and um, they are going to be voting on some school board seats. Even here in Illinois, where we might think we are safe from this kind of thing, there are far-right organizations that are either showing up in person or trying to teach people they perceive to be like-minded how to take over the local school board. And what's the point of that? The point of that is to make sure we don't want any of those gay books there. The point is what we're seeing in Florida, sort of a sort of a youth-oriented mind control. These races are important. We're going to talk to one of the people running for school board out in the suburbs when we come right back after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. We have been uh, talking about school boards. You've seen some of the horrific videos of people screaming and yelling at local school boards. And here's the weird thing. A lot of those troublemakers not only don't have kids in the school system, they don't even live there. 
They're outside agitators because the far right has decided that school boards are way too liberal. All those books, letting them read all those books, letting them learn all that stuff. Remember, we have to be very careful what kids learn about, especially when it comes to history, because we don't want them to be upset. They don't want we don't want anybody to be upset. District 214 uh, is looking for some people to be on the local school board. Frank Ferrito is one of those people, and he joins us now to talk about this. Frank, how are you? I'm great, Joan. I'm um, honored to be talking with a TV and radio legend. This is quite... uh, (laughs) quite Well, when you figure out who that is, let me know. Um, First of all, for our... (laughs) <laughs> For our listeners, tell us uh, where uh, what D214 encompasses the area. Sure. Um, first, I want to mention that I currently serve on uh, River Trails 26 Elementary School Board, and that um, encompasses Mount Prospect, Prospect Heights, and a little bit of displays. Now, Township D- District 214, the high school district, it's the second largest district in the state of Illinois, and it encompasses just an uh, incredible large area. Um, you're talking Buffalo Grove to the north, Wheeling to the east. You have Mount Prospect in there, Rolling Meadows, Arlington Heights, uh, Prospect Heights, and then you go all the way down to Elko Village in the south. It is a huge district. It has uh, seven schools, and the enrollment is around 14,000. How many people are running in this race? We, we have uh, five candidates for three Three spots. Um, I'm running on a slate with two incumbents, and then there's two other um, people that are running uh, for the spot. You know, I have uh, I have talked with our mutual good friend Julie from uh, Indivisible Rural Indivisible, and uh, she said that there are some, shall we say, marked differences between the candidates. Would you like to tell us about that, Frank? Yes, there absolutely is. Um, we we you have um, a couple of candidates whose, whose names I won't mention. Um, one is uh, one is endorsed by Moms for America, which uh, I think you probably know what they what they stand for, and um, the other one uh, tweets a lot on Wake America or Wake. Oh. America, I'm sorry. So so here's the problem: is that school boards, just like park district and library boards, we are the last bastion of nonpartisan elections. But what's happening now is you have groups that are entering the arena thinking that they can somehow especially in the South. I mean, Texas, Florida, South Carolina, you, you have groups like Moms for Liberty that are endorsing and, and funding candidates. They're getting on the school boards, and then superintendents, many who are doing the right thing for the students, are, are basically being forced out because suddenly a school board has a four to three majority in the other way, and they're pushing these superintendents out. And, and it's just it's not, it's not where we need to be putting our time, effort, and money, it, you know, we are all about educating kids. Instead, we're, we're worried about, yeah, we're walking on eggshells. And, and I, can give you, I can give you three topics um, right off the bat. Uh, critical race theory. That, that's, a, that's a big item that people talk about a lot. Um, we don't teach it in our school district. Most school districts don't. But, but somehow, you know, you know how it is. It's misinformation. Everything. They're doing this, they're doing this, they're doing this. And the fact of the matter is, People are not doing that. Uh, book banning. That, that's, that's one you were kind of touching upon in your intro. Um, book banning is a great one. 
Um, you have people coming to school boards, including mine, and they're asking for books to be banned. And if we were to have, if everybody would say they wanted to have a book banned, there'd be like three or four books left in the library because each person might think differently about a book, but we just can't have that. And so what it's forcing people to do, what it's forcing districts to do is, you know, their processes are solid and, and librarians are fighting back on it too. We have a librarian in um, our school district, 214, um, from John Hersey High School that came to a board meeting and he, he flat out said, you know, he put the rest, a lot of the rumors about what librarians do. And, and I really appreciated this, this gentleman uh, putting his neck out there and just saying, hey, listen, you know, we, we don't have these neon signs telling students, hey, read these books, the books that the parents don't want them reading. So what most school districts do is, especially the, the younger grades, it's plain and simple. If you don't want your child to read a book, you basically tell the school, I don't want my child reading this book. And, and that's the easiest thing to do. Rather than us being forced to taking a book off a shelf that other kids might be interested in reading, we pretty yeah, much... Yeah, but that's not what they do. As I've talked to a lot of librarians who've, who said that that has always been in place. And frankly, if that kid uh, comes in and wants to read that book, the librarian tells them, I can't give you that book. You need to talk to your parents about this. And that's as it should be. Uh, but what these parents are doing is they're going to these libraries and they're saying, no kid, I don't want any kid to read this book. And what yeah. librarians have found, because there's a certain process, certain paperwork that has to be filed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the organizations that want these book bans are distributing the writing. So, like, whether it's in Iowa or whether it's in Illinois, the parent presents the same exact wording, which they have cut and paste off of a website. And librarians are also telling me, Frank, that a lot of times the parents who are protesting these books haven't read them. They don't really know what's in them. They just know that it's on a list and they're supposed to protest. Well, it goes even deeper than that, Joan. Um, you know, parents, they want to hold everybody accountable, and they themselves should be held accountable, too, including myself. I have a, I have a just-turned-18-year-old, and I have a just-turned-14-year-old daughter. And we should know what books they're reading. We should. But but when you got people that have no clue what their, what their kids – books their kids are reading, they just blow things out of proportion and say, well, they're not going to read this book because somebody else told me they shouldn't be reading the book. And that's unfortunate. It really is. And, and then you, you also mentioned the anger that uh, that's being displayed at board meetings. And, and a lot of it happened during the pandemic with the masks. I mean, that, that was pretty much big in just every district, including mine. But uh, recently, it's sex education. And here's another one where you have a situation where um, people are just making judgments based on hearsay. They're not, they're not really following what's really happening. So here's an example with us. We had a gentleman come to our board meeting. He's not even part from our school district. He doesn't live in the area. I think he's from Barrington. And he came and he screamed at us about our school district, which is preschool through eighth grade, that we're teaching um, masturbation to first and second graders and anal sex to fourth and fifth graders. And none of it was true. None of it. Myself and two other board members, we went through the entire 55-minute sex education um, PowerPoint 
that they would be teaching the kids, mostly in middle school, six through eight. Um, we went through the whole thing, watched it, and and they had like less than 40 seconds for each of those t- subjects, and they weren't showing it, displaying it. They were just defining it. And the what that day that he was that that angry man was at the school board meeting yelling. Did anybody listen to him? Was what? How did that play out? We we we, we had you know you have to listen. He, nobody, none of us knew this gentleman. We didn't know where he was from, and he he ducked out and then he came back in and then the worst part about it was he just didn't go right there. He told us at the end of the presentation, which was just infuriating, he said, instead of teaching kids this stuff, you should be working on one of your crappy schools. And, and that was just like, there you go. That, that, that's, it. that's it in a nutshell. It really is. So like I said, we, we went through the whole presentation. Most of the presentation was about abstinence, which a lot of these people should be praising us for. If that's, you know, if you know who you're talking about or talking to, you know, that's probably what they would want to be taught. And that's what is part of the part of the presentation and part of the program. But again, we tell the parents, if you don't want your children to be part of this program, they can opt out. Plain and simple. Don't make it don't make it hard for everybody else. Just say, I want to opt out. And, that, and it's easy. And it, it, it works in high school, too. If, if you know, instead of dictating what what should be taught, just take the easy way out, and that that would help all of us. It really would. Absolutely. I, I real quick for those listeners who aren't familiar, you you referenced a while ago, Moms for America. Uh, it is yeah. one of those uh, white Christian groups. Um, of course, they're very careful. They're not going to say, you know, we don't want black people, we don't want gay people, uh, um, but. Um, their motto, they, um, they want to raise patriots. They promote liberty and they want to raise patriots. And, um, anyway, I just wanted to, uh, we've, we've gone out there and we, we've looked at the website and, um, yeah, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what it's all about. I mean, Yeah. It, it, it is disappointing. But the, the one thing I really want to tell you, too, is that all this is really putting the, the biggest hurt that's happening is the teaching profession. It, it's making the job for teachers all that much more difficult. And they're leaving in droves. And, and, and they don't have people coming through the ranks to replace them. Illinois is, is far superior to a lot of other states. But at some point in time, it's really going to hit us as hard as it is some of the other states. I mean, in Florida, practically anybody walking off the street can get a, a teaching job. It's, it's so, yeah. you know, it, you, there's no rigor to what you have to have to get qualified for a teacher. In Florida, it's, it, you know, I shouldn't say it's walking off the street, but it is a lot easier in Florida. And, you know, all you have to do is be in a school for a day. I volunteer at my lunch hour every day to help out in a lunchroom and a playground. But I could see how difficult a job the teachers have. And if more of them are leaving and people are coming through the ranks, the value of education for everyone is going to suffer badly. It's not going to be like when you and I went to school, we got great education. And it's just not the public schools. It's going to be the private schools, too. And that's, so that, that's the do you have any uh, sense 
of um, do you have any sense of how the race is going to unfold? Do you feel confident you're going to get a seat? Then the two incumbents are going to stay. Or do you think that there are people who are entranced by this more radical message? Um, I think there are, are, are there are people that are entranced by it. Um, fortunately for us, it's a big enough district where I think we can overcome it. District 14 is a, a very high quality uh, school school district, probably one of the best in the state. And the fact that, you know, people move into the area because because of the schools. So I, I'm confident with, with the experience that the, my two running mates have. In my experience, um, 12 years in 26 and eight years in the special education school board, I'm, I'm confident that that hopefully we'll win and we can uh, continue the quality of education. But I will say this. One of the comments that, that these, these individuals have made, they are right, and that is no school district is perfect and no school board is perfect. So is there areas in which D214 can improve? Absolutely. All school districts, all school boards can say the same. And we have to work a little bit harder. But the problem is, is that you can try listening to all you want, but we have really lost our way um, in our state, in our country, that people no longer agree to disagree. It's either I'm right, you're wrong, or you're wrong, I'm right. And and that's the sad part is that you can't find um, consensus and compromise, and it really it really hurts. It really does. Well, so, I wish you a lot of luck, Frank. Yeah, if you have any answers on any of this, I'd love to hear it. Really <laughs> yeah, it's just you know. We, um, you know, Tom Hartman on this radio station says over and over again, democracy is not a spectator sport. Some of us have learned that a little bit later in life than others. We have to pay attention to everything all the time because these yeah. people who are on the far, far right, they are they they are fueled by the passion of their zealotry. And we can't be complacent in the face of that. We just can't. Agree. Totally well, agree. I I wish you luck. Let me know how it turns out, okay? Thank you, Joan. And I can't tell you, thank you very much for giving me this small amount of time to talk about education in Illinois. It's, it's greatly appreciated. It really is. Well, it's important. It's very important. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad you're here to do it. Uh, thank you, Frank. Thank you, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. That's uh, Frank Ferrito. If you uh, live in School District 214, you will find him on your ballot for school board, be a good person to pick. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Tonight's election coverage on WCBT is sponsored by Fazio Insurance. Fazio Insurance, an independent insurance agency serving residents and businesses in Will and DuPage counties. Since 1953, the Fazio Insurance name has been trusted by the community to offer unparalleled service and competitive quotes to clients throughout the state of Illinois. For more information, contact Paul Fazio at 815-727-2611 or check them out on their website, fazioinsurance.com. There is an election day tradition in Chicago that candidates go to to Manny's Deli for a breakfast or an early lunch. Uh, a friend of mine was there just kind of observing all the hubbub and texted me that the mayor walked in and things had gotten really exciting at that point. <laughs> mayor Lori Lightfoot joins us now. Did you at least at Manny's Deli get something to eat, Mayor? 
Oh, yeah. I always make sure that uh, I eat the great food at, at Manny's. So it was good. It was a nice crowd, uh, good buzz in the air, um, lots of folks there. So we had a good time. How are you spending today? Um, spending time uh, going out and connecting with voters. I've uh, been all over the west side, down, now down uh, in the uh, 18th Ward, um, going to uh, polling places and uh, doing a little retail. <laughs> Um, when are you going to be at your campaign headquarters, and where are where is that tonight? Uh, we're going to be at the Carpenters Hall tonight. Um, I won't get there until probably uh, right as the polls are closing or a little bit later. Um, I think it's going to be a bit of a, a late night because there's a lot of uh, mail-in ballots that are going to have to be uh, counted, and they can't start uh, opening them until 7 p.m. So this is not going to be one of those elections that gets declared at 7.15 or 7.30. It's going to take a little while. Well, uh, Max Bever from the Board of Elections said it might not even be tonight. It might not even be tomorrow. It might potentially not be for several days, possibly even a couple of weeks. What do you do in the meantime if you don't know? Well, first of all, the Board of Elections has got to get enough resources um, to make sure that it's not weeks and days and weeks. That would be unprecedented in Chicago. And I hope uh, I don't have any say or influence over the Board of Elections, but they need to have, to have enough resources to get those votes counted. We need to know. Well, it's certainly going to it's certainly going to be crazy if you don't even know if you're in the runoff. I mean, I understand you have a day job, so you have something that will keep you busy. But but think of it. I mean, you know, basically you all have to keep on campaigning until you know for sure who's in the runoff. Well, I, I'm going to um, look on the bright side and hope that we know uh, later tonight. Um, but, you know, we've seen in other cities uh, that have um, had uh, mail-in, uh, that it's not necessarily determined on the night of. But, look, the most important thing is we've got basically uh, four more hours uh, before the polls close, and we need to everybody out there to vote. This is the day. No more waiting. No more being on the sideline. Get to the polls and cast your vote. When you're out and about talking to voters, what is your what is the obviously it's a, it's the very last minute. What's the message you're giving them? The one thing you really want them to take away? Well, look, I think um, the choice is very clear. I think this has come down to a two person race. Um, and what I remind people of is uh, the big contrast between me and Paul Vallis. Um, I think most people recognize we've been through um, a, a tremendous uh, time in the last four years that we're coming out of the, out on the other side of it. Um, things are looking optimistic and bright in our city. We want to continue the work that we, the collective we all across the city have started. None of that work will continue. Economic development, uh, prosperity, businesses coming, uh, stitching back the social safety net, continuing to bend the curve on violent crime. All of that is at risk if we don't have continuity. And so I'm urging people to punch seven and vote for me. When you are out and about today talking to people, is there one thing that they want to talk to you about specifically or one question that the majority of them want to ask you? Well, there's a high number of people that we've come in to contact with today that early voted, which I think is a good a good thing, a good sign. Um, but no, I think most people are just wanting to know <clears throat> what, what I think the future is going to hold. 
<clears throat> and I tell them what I what I've said, which is we've got to keep um, fighting hard against the um, dangerous people in our city and um, make sure that we take illegal guns off the street. We've got to make sure that we continue to bring economic development uh, to areas of the neighborhood. A lot of people bring up COVID and are thanking me and the team for what we did to keep people safe uh, during COVID. That's a, a, a consistent theme that I'm hearing and I've been hearing now uh, for the weeks that I've been out on the campaign trail. Will you know how to be mayor for another four years without COVID? I mean, it was such a huge part of our lives. I, I am I am excited to learn how. Oh. You know, we, we were able to do a lot, but with, without people having to worry about the constant dread of COVID. And now that we've got the vaccine um, and boosters, I think it's just given people a new lease on life. But that trauma of what we went through for really two dark years is still with people. So you're pretty confident that it's going to be you and Paul Vallis. You just don't think that Brandon Johnson or Congressman Garcia are going to make the cut? Well, everything seems to be trending uh, in that direction, both our internal polling, what we've heard from from others. It feels like that's the way that it's moving. But we obviously won't know until uh, the final votes are, are, are counted. But I'm optimistic. Um, but we're going to keep fighting uh, through the end. Where are you going to be off to after we finish talking? Uh, we're going to um, go start making our way back north. Uh, we're going to the 17th Ward next, Auburn Gresham area. Well, I, um, you must have tremendous stamina, and uh, you know clearly your voice is holding out. So uh, I wish you, I wish you nothing but the best. I can't imagine what campaigning in a for a race like this is like the the twenty four seven of it. I, I I admire anybody who puts their name out there and puts their themselves out there. Uh, it is it is an undertaking. I don't think the average person really understands what uh, what a commitment it is, body and soul, twenty four seven. And, um, you know, good luck. Try to have some fun out there. <laughs> well, look, you know, I, I, I actually love campaigning. I love going to different parts of the people or parts of the city, uh, meeting people from all walks of life. Uh, it gives me tremendous uh, energy and stamina. And look, this has been um, the honor of a lifetime to be the mayor of the city. And I'm hoping that I get the opportunity to continue doing it uh, for four more years. But the most important thing today is people need to show up. They need to vote. They need to exercise the most powerful tool that we have in our democracy, which is vote, vote, vote. Absolutely. I may um, I may be co-moderating a, a mayoral runoff debate sometime in March. So let's just say I'll see you then. Well, I hope I'm there. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, Mayor Lightfoot. Um, we are here's what we are going to do with the rest of our schedule today. We're going to take a little bit of a breather from looking at uh, local races. And uh, we are going to take an hour to look at the situation internationally, what's going on. We're going to be joined by uh, political science professor William Muck, who is going to talk to us about that. And so, so here's your your one your one hour breather. Um, from from local politics. Uh, by the way, President Biden made a speech just a little while ago where he was talking about the economy. 
Lots going on inside and outside the Chicagoland area. We're going to spend the next hour talking with Professor William Muck. And if there is an international story that you would like to talk about, give us a call, 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. You can call us on that line and you can text us on that line. Our texting line is uh, sponsored by Camp Kupagani. You hear about them on WCPT all of the time. It's a summer camp where kids are not only taught the usual summer activities, but um, they're taught to get along with a diverse group of folks, a diverse group of kids. So we thank Camp Kupagani for sponsoring our text line, uh, 773-763-9278. You can call me. You can text me on that line. We are going to talk international issues with Professor William Muck uh, for the next hour. And then we're going to be back to politics. Uh, we're going to try to touch base with some of our reporters out in the field. And then remember, Patty's doing her regular show from 5 to 7. And then at 7 o'clock, we're going to start a three-hour election show that is going to be hosted by Patty Vasquez, Santita Jackson, and me. So stick around. Uh, if you have trouble getting our signal at night, listen on your computer. Go to WCPT820.com and click on the Listen Live button, okay? Makes things really easy. Let's get started right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. Political science professor William Muck, who specializes in international goings-on, is here uh, to focus on the parts of the world that are not Chicago, right right now. Uh, William, we've been a little Chicago-centric for the last couple of days, and uh, we usually spend more time paying attention to what is going on around the world. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today to remind us that there is life outside of Chicago and outside of Illinois and even outside of the United States. How are you? I am great. I love that in the midst of this all Chicago politics news day, you're taking a bit of a break to kind of look outside of Chicago. It's it's wonderful. And I'm glad I can be that voice. You're you're our palate cleanser. So please (laughs) don't don't feel that there's too much pressure here. Uh, Before we get into other things, I I'm not I need you to explain to me what is going on with this deal that the UK prime minister Sunak did that has to do with Northern Ireland and some sort of Brexit deal. I'm, I, I don't have a grasp of this. Can you explain it to me? 
Sure. This is really fascinating. So uh, when you go back to the initial Brexit decision, which was the United Kingdom leaving the European Union, they had this really sticky problem about what do you do with, with Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, but also part of the island of, uh, you know, island of Ireland. And, and so if you, if you suddenly say that there's a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, there was all sorts of fears that you would return to the sectarian violence of the Trump of the 70s and 80s. So there was a desire to keep that border open. Well, it created all sorts of problems. It meant that you suddenly had a hard border between the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. And so what the deal today was is basically bringing that border down so that if you're living in Great Britain and you want to send goods to Northern Ireland, they have what's now called the Green Lane. So there's no uh, customs checks. It's going to basically allow it much, much more easily for goods and services to go from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Um, and it was a deal between the European Union and the United Kingdom to basically make this a little bit easier to have goods and services going back and forth between uh, Northern Ireland and uh, Great Britain as a whole, because it was proving to just be a terrible, terrible mess. Uh, and again, that's that's part of Brexit. This whole thing has been such a terrible mess for the United Kingdom. But that's essentially what, what happened today. Well, what does that mean, though, as far as Northern Ireland and the rest of Europe? It's This is a great... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead, because I, I was just going to say I don't get it. Very yeah, confused. Yeah, well, so right. <laughs> so, now, so what they decided, and they're, they're using colors to keep this, this sort of uh, simple, there's going to be what they call the green lane. And so anything coming from Great, Great Britain that is going to stay in Northern Ireland goes through what they're calling the green lane. And there will be very, very few checks on that. But anything that's going into Northern Ireland that might go into Ireland will go through the red lane. And essentially what that means is that would be like going through an international border. Um, and it sounds confusing, but it's actually much, much easier than the current system which was anything going from from Great Britain to Northern Ireland was as if it was going into another country. And so it was making the the business dynamics in Northern Ireland really, really messy. Uh, you had political dynamics coming out of the Good Friday Accord that, you know, the parliament wasn't working. Um, so they had to come up with some solution. And I think this is the, the short-term solution that they hope is going to get trade going back, you know, across, uh, across the IRC between uh, Northern Ireland and, and Great Britain. But it's, you know, big picture, Brexit is just turning out to be a terrible economic mess for the United Kingdom. And this is just one way of, of kind of limiting some of the damage. Well, I, I have read that many of the people who voted for Brexit sort of felt they were sold a bill of goods. And, you know, I've seen interview after interview. Well, if I knew it was going to mean this, oh, I wouldn't have done it. So what I'm wondering is with this deal with Northern Ireland and the Green Lane and the Red Lane, I'm wondering if there's a way for the rest of the United Kingdom to use Northern Ireland to sort of get around their own Brexit limitations. You see what I'm saying? I totally do. The problem is the hardcore Brexiteers don't want that to happen, right? So there are these interesting forces playing out in the United Kingdom right now. There are many who, are, as you said, who are looking at this saying, we regret this decision, you know, and I think the, the polling is somewhere between 70 and 80% of those polled say that this is, they wish they could do it over, that they wish they hadn't left uh, the European Union because the economic costs are so severe. Uh, but the hardcore Brexiteers don't want any loopholes. They don't want to find any 
many ways to do that. So there's a sense of, of nationalism that is that is driving the political process in the United Kingdom right now that I think is economically and politically very, very dangerous. So um, I wouldn't be surprised um, with the next big election. It is likely that the Conservative Party is going to be voted out of power and Labour will come in. Um, they won't rejoin the European Union because that's just a, a political mess right now. But you might see more engagement with the European Union, trying to redefine this new relationship so there are more ties, uh, because it is in the United Kingdom's economic interest to, to be able to re-engage economically with the European Union. And, the, you know, when you, I talk to all sorts of economists and they, they always say the same thing, that this is just a bad, bad decision for the United Kingdom. Okay. It's a bad decision. A majority of the people regret it. We are possibly going to see a change in the government. Why wouldn't Labor come in and say, we're going to save this country. You were given bad information. We're going to hold this vote again and we're going to reconnect. Why is that not? Why is that not possible? Why is that too complicated? Joan, you know politics gets in the way, right? They're oftentimes really simple solutions, uh, and the political dynamics make those easy solutions more difficult, right? And I think some of it would be, I don't even know if the European Union wants to have that conversation with the United Kingdom right now. I mean, it has been a terrible mess <laughs> like a trying to negotiate lover. this. <laughs> exactly, right? So, so I don't think the European Union wants to get caught up in UK politics, where when the conservatives are in power, it's time to leave the European Union. And then when Labour comes back, it's trying to rejoin. So I think over the long haul, the EU might might rethink allowing the United Kingdom back in if it was sincere. But I think in the short term, uh, there's got to be some thinking within the United Kingdom, right? They sort of have to to grapple with their decisions. And um, so, yes, I, I mean, it, it seems like such a, a silly decision, but, it, it, you know, it, it, oh, it's just, it's really put them in a bad situation. The, the recent the IMF came out recently and they looked at economic predictions across Europe. And next year, the IMF predicts that uh, the United Kingdom is going to grow slower than the Russian economy. And I, when I saw that, it was just stunning, right? If you think about all the sanctions on Russia right now, it is in a difficult place. But some projections uh, projections are suggesting that Russia is going to be better off next year than the United Kingdom. Right? I mean, that is it just shows how populism and, and politics can really, really undermine an economy. So the United Kingdom can't go to the rest of the European Union and say, it wasn't you, it was me. I'm so sorry. I've come to my senses. I realize now that you are the one. No, that's that just. No, no. And what's interesting is there's no other countries, right? So when in when this happens, so if we go back to to 2016 and we had these you know these major waves of populism, so Brexit occurs, and then not long after that, Donald Trump is elected, and there was some thought that there might be other countries who would want to leave the European Union, whether it was France or Italy. I mean, there was quite a bit of conversation about that. Now that the rest of the European Union has seen what's happened to the United Kingdom, nobody wants anything to do with leaving the European Union. It is it is taught a real important lesson about the dangers a cautionary of tale it's exactly right unbelievable um professor william muck and i are going to be taking a break i'm not done with the united kingdom because when we come back i want to talk about nicola sturgeon who up until recently has been one of the leaders of the government in scotland she was also one of the major voices calling for scottish independence I want to find out why she's leaving, who's going to replace her, and if Scotland will ever get a chance to vote for independence. We will be right back after this. 
You're listening to The Joan Esposito Show. Live, local, and progressive. Brought to you by Fazio Insurance, an independent insurance agency serving residents and businesses in Will and DuPage counties since 1953. We are taking a break from Chicago politics. Yes, I know it's Election Day. We'll get back to it. We are talking what is going on internationally with political science professor William Muck. And before we went to break, I told him when we came back, I want to talk about Nicola Sturgeon. Up until recently, she was the leading uh, leading uh, legislator in the Scottish government, the leading light of the Scottish government. But um, much like we heard from um, the leader in, in New Zealand, she's like, you know what? I'm tired. This job is hard. Um, I've given it everything I've got, and I'm leaving. The only thing that was interesting is that it sort of came out of nowhere, because even as early as two weeks before she made that announcement, she was um, telling reporters that she was committed to continuing on in the job. So let's ask Professor Muck what is going on in Scotland well, it's interesting, and I'm glad you made the connection to New Zealand because I I see those as similar, and, and and we'll probably learn more in the future about what was really motivating uh, her for to leave this position. And she has said uh, it's nothing to do with the interest or ability. She said it has to do, deal with deeper issues, and and I wonder. It's hard to know whether she just is worn out. Um, and I think we saw that in New Zealand. You know, being a head of state or being in that type of position as a woman is incredibly difficult, right? The challenges are different than being a man in that position. So so who knows whether that was more of a grind. I think the really interesting question is what does that mean for Scottish independence moving forward? Uh, she has been very much part of that conversation and and giving some some long-term predictions that they would once again have a more meaningful conversation about leaving the United Kingdom. So I think whoever comes next, and you're, you know, you hear different names thrown around, but it doesn't sound like they've settled on anything yet. Um, you're going to want to hear from that person about what do they think about pushing this again? Uh, the United Kingdom has said they don't want to allow Scotland to have another vote on this. Uh, but Scotland could push this, right? I mean, they could make this more difficult and say, we want to revisit our relationship uh, with the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, it goes back to our conversation about the European Union. If you're Scotland right now, um, you are also suffering from being disconnected from the European Union. Uh, and you see a lot of economic upside to rejoining that, even as a, a sovereign, independent country. So I think it's 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 opened uh, or turned the page to see where what's coming next for Scotland. I think there's a lot of big questions hanging out there. Okay, here again, my naivete is going to rear its ugly head. I know that the way the rules are set up, the United Kingdom is supposed to give permission for Scotland to take these kinds of votes, but why can't they just do it anyway? <laughs> Why can't they hold their own referendum? You know, it's like, you know, they don't do they absolutely have to have mommy and daddy's permission. You know, they're grown up now. They want to if they want to do this. Why can't they just do it? Even if a vote like that would carry no serious political weight. You know, you could take you could say, well, you know, mommy, daddy, we're not going to wait till you say we can. We're going to do this. And oh, by the way, look, at here's the results of that vote. We either want to stay with you or we don't. And what are you going to do about that? I don't understand right. this. 
It's it's interesting, right? Because when you think about states as a whole, they don't like when these votes occur, right? So if you're the United States, you don't want to allow Texas or California to have a vote for leaving, right? You want to keep everybody together. So Texas, in general, no, I, I would support I would support a vote <laughs> for Texas to leave. I absolutely would. And take Florida with it. Okay. Take with it. <laughs> I'm there for you. Sure. No, that's right. But it's in general, states don't want to do that because it you know, undermines their, their power, their economy and all of that. So and also Scotland, as they're thinking about this, if they really want to make that move, they, they have to engage in negotiations with the United Kingdom about that. So the last referendum that that took place um, that was supported by the United Kingdom, it was all part of a broader process to kind of see where they were at. Now, it is possible that if there is enough political support in Scotland for this, uh, that they could basically force the hand of the United Kingdom to say we, we want to do this with or without you. And then there would be some more conversations. A lot of it comes down to how adamant the voices, the public in Scotland becomes about this. And again, as, as I mentioned earlier, the economic implications of leaving the European, European Union, if they become more severe, I think those voices and calling for independence are going to grow. So there's really two dynamics here. One is thinking about Scotland and whether they want to leave the United Kingdom. The other interesting question is Northern Ireland. And, and that may, these, these conversations may not happen in the next year or two, but I think over the next five or 10 years, you're going to hear more conversation about whether Northern Ireland should rejoin Ireland and whether Scotland wants to uh, follow independence, right? I mean, I think you're going to hear more conversations. doesn't mean they go through it, but I think leaving the European Union is going to create more space for that discourse. You say that if there was enough political support in Scotland that maybe the United Kingdom would revisit that. What would that look like? Would the, are you talking about protests in the streets? Are you talking about angry opinion pieces in the newspaper? What kind of political action would have to occur to bring this about? Yeah, I think all of the above, right? I mean, you could talk about uh, local politicians pushing back through through their political venues. You could talk about protests. You could talk about polling. Um, you know, all of those things could lead to this kind of conversation again. Now, the United Kingdom, I think, is as a whole, the British Parliament is going to be very reluctant to do so because they're they're smart. They know that it's more likely that Scotland is going to want independence if if the economic dynamics change and move in a worse direction. So, I mean, I think in some ways that's why the agreement we saw today between Great Britain and Northern Ireland about, you know, the uh, the trade deal there is so important because the United Kingdom wants to keep all of these parts together, right? Um, they want England and they want Wales and they want Scotland and Northern Ireland all to be part of the United Kingdom. They don't want these states running for independence, but they've got some real challenges ahead. If the economic downturn in the UK continues to get more severe, it's going to put so much pressure on the political process. The, for those members of our listening audience who didn't see uh, Kenneth Branagh's film Belfast, a revisit the separation of Ireland and Northern Ireland, because, I mean, we're sort of a aren't we sort of a, a better, more um, welcoming kind of world now? I mean, surely the Catholics and the Protestants don't hate each other like they did back then. What is keeping them apart? Uh, in terms of uh, rejoining or, or preventing yeah, the violence yeah, from kind why, of erupting? Why not? Yeah, well, so why, still- why couldn't they? 
Well, you still have the you still have the unionists. So you still have a large Protestant group in Northern Ireland who very much wants to be part of the United Kingdom. Uh, and in some ways, those voices there are are more British uh, than in uh, you know the, in Great Britain proper, right? Because they still see that sense of identity. And the Good Friday Accords, you know, coming back in 1998, part of the solution to the violence was to to, to have a power sharing agreement uh, between the Catholics and the Protestants, and and so the Protestants are not going to want to join with Ireland. They're going to push back on this. So, um, so there's all sorts of dynamics that are lose playing their out. Power. Exactly. In, you know, now what's happening is you're seeing a growing Catholic population in Northern Ireland. So there are some that are saying that just demographic change over time is also going to put more pressure on this solution, right? So it's, there are so many moving parts in the United Kingdom right now. And so it's, it's, it's messy. And I think over time, there's going to be some clarity about where these two uh, entities ultimately end up thinking about both Northern Ireland and Scotland. By the way, did you see Belfast? And if so, did you find that it was it rang true? Yes, I mean just just powerful. Yeah, those I love movies like that that sort of explore these inner dynamics and um, yeah, very very revealing. Yes, I was uh, very lucky. I was out in Los Angeles, and a friend of mine belongs to the Producers Guild. So he took me to a screening. This, of course, you know, before the awards, they always do all this sort of stuff. And uh, Kenneth Branagh and the entire cast was there. And, uh, you know, the Belfast, for those of you who didn't get a chance to see it, it's basically sort of autobiographical. It was it was Kenneth Branagh's growing up story, much like the Fablemans is apparently doing the same thing for Steven Spielberg. But uh, just it's it was it was it's a very well done movie. But to see that kind of hate and to see neighbor turn against neighbor, I mean, it really uh, it was it, for somebody like me who is who hasn't spent a lot of time, you know, getting into uh, deeply into history. It was it was a real history lesson and a very human one, I thought. Yes, and and as you think about, we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Accords, um, you know, basically bringing peace to Northern Ireland, and think about what a success that agreement has been. You know, obviously there are hiccups along the way, but that has dramatically transformed the lives of the people in those communities. And the the solution there was both power sharing and economic engagement, right? So that what was so was so important. You tie the groups together economically. You share political power. I mean, you think about policing and all of those issues. Like you come up. It's rare to see something like that work. I mean, I think about all the, you know, the agreements around the international system that end up falling through. This is one that proved really, really successful. Um, and obviously it has, has a lot of impact uh, in the United States as well. And, you know, I think it's, it's likely that Joe Biden may take a trip uh, to, to sort of acknowledge that 25th anniversary coming up as long as everything really? continues as normal in, in, that, in that time frame. You really think so? I think so. I mean, I think Joe Biden thinks about this as, as a success, right? And and I think there's mm-hmm. been some reluctance in the Biden administration to commit because the the relationship between the United States and, and the United Kingdom is, is still very good. But there's frustration with them leaving Brexit. There's frustration with how they've handled the Northern Ireland situation. And so I think the agreement that we saw come together yesterday and today, uh, I think that creates some space where Biden may actually make a trip there because I think he feels very connected to the history there as well. Well, um, I know that one of Biden's big achievements has been getting um, the Western world, Canada, the United Kingdom and Western Europe on board to support Ukraine. 
We haven't uh, touched on that particular international story, and we will right after we take a break. If you want to join our conversation, 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. We may have to uh, stay on this uh, topic for a quick second before we switch over to Ukraine, because I do see I have some texted questions for you uh, that I am just noticing. I'm joined by Professor William Muck. He's a political science professor, specializes in international goings on. We'll be right back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. North Central College political science professor William Muck joins us. We are talking about international goings on. We've been talking about Ireland and Scotland and what's going on in the United Kingdom. And I missed, uh, William, I missed this text. Please ask your guest what part jurisdiction over the North Sea oil plays in the desire of Scots to gain independence. Joan, a lot. <laughs> so, so this is, you know, when you see states break up, uh, and it happens, it's, it's a rare occurrence in history, but one of the sticking points is who gets access to those resources. Uh, and, and the state who's left behind obviously is going to want that. But as Scotland is thinking about that, they're going to have want access to and control of those resources. And so in some ways, this goes back to circles back to your initial question about why would the United Kingdom, uh, want to allow this to play out? Well, they're going to, they're going to want to be part of the process if they have to divide these resources and Scotland would realize that as well. So it would take a long time to work through all those details. Uh, so oil is obviously one. Another issue is nuclear weapons, uh, right? If there are nuclear weapons stationed in Scotland, which I, I believe there are, uh, you would have to negotiate that. So Scotland wouldn't get to keep its nuclear weapons. They would Who's, have to go back. Are they Scotland's nuclear weapons? Are they UK's? Are they ours? They, they, Who's are they? They would be the the United Kingdom's weapons. Uh, and so if Scotland were to break away, uh, part of that negotiation would be returning those weapons. And, and I think Scotland probably doesn't need nuclear weapons. They're probably not really worried about their security, but these are all the, the little details that have to get negotiated out, right? I mean, so if we go think about Ukraine, like when Ukraine got its dependent independence, part of that agreement was they gave up their own nuclear weapons. They weren't controlled by Ukraine. They were controlled by the Soviet Union. But part of that deal was Ukraine gave up control of those weapons and Russia promised never to invade Ukraine, right? I mean, so all of these things, you know, so can they ask for him back now? <laughs> right. Now they can ask so, for him back, right? Well, no. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> you I mean, you, you know, said Ukraine you wouldn't did- invade if we gave these to you. We gave them to you, invaded. We want them back. This is right. This is why states are very reluctant to give up nuclear weapons, right? And now it, we should be clear that Ukraine, it, the Soviet Union continued to control those weapons in Ukraine. But nevertheless, I mean, Ukraine could have said, we're going to hold on to them. We'll figure out the technology later. Uh, but they said, no, 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 we're willing to, to give them up, uh, in exchange for an agreement from Russia to never invade Ukraine. And uh, boy, you look back and you say, uh, boy, history plays out in really interesting ways. 
Uh, then we also have a text uh, speaking of Ukraine from a listener who wants you to say to us, what would push Putin to end the special military operation? Well, I, I think I think it's going to have to be a military defeat. Um, I, I don't think there's any really negotiated solution for Putin right now. Um, it's pretty clear that he wants to hold on to those territories in eastern Ukraine. And Crimea is a non-starter for him. Right. So and, and what's happened in Ukraine, when you listen to Zelensky, he says we want to retake those those four territories in eastern Ukraine. And we also want Crimea back because that was part of Ukraine. And, and it is a very legitimate uh, request from Zelensky, right? Because, I mean, Russia stole, basically stole that in 2014. So I don't see any negotiated solution that Putin would agree to at this point, which means that the only way you get to a, a solution is some sort of military defeat. Uh, and, and that's very, very difficult, right? So I, I think as we think about this conflict playing out, um, it is, it's going to drag on for a while. And the only thing that's going to fundamentally change the positions of Ukraine and Russia will be some significant loss on the battlefield, which is, is not really good news. It suggests that this is going to be an ugly conflict that that will play out for maybe even potentially years. OK, I know that initially the Western world was reluctant to give uh, too many super complicated, high powered, high tech weapons to Ukraine. There were a number of reasons given. We don't want to aggravate Russia more than they're already aggravated. Um, the Ukraine, Ukrainian army doesn't know how to work these things. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I hope you do see this differently. To me, it feels like we are supplying Ukraine with the weaponry necessary to keep things in a stalemate, but not enough to win. I mean, it, is that is that just me? No, no, no. I think that's that's something that you've heard uh, come from the Ukrainians themselves. Now, they say it very carefully and diplomatically because you don't want to alienate the United States. And they talk about that timing matters so much uh, and that if, if the United States could just speed up the process by which they start to advance the, the weaponry, that would make a big difference. Um, now, I will say one thing that we've seen in the last couple months out of the Biden administration is that they are now finally starting to give Ukraine weapons that will allow them to go on the offensive. So there's been a lot of conversation about tanks, uh, giving them much more long range missiles. And so then you have to ask the question, well, why is the United States giving those weapons now? And I think the thinking is you want to give Ukraine the weaponry that they're going to need to carry out their own offensive. And so we're, what we're watching right now is the beginning of a, of a Russian offensive, right? I think they're going to try to push further into Ukraine. But in the next couple of weeks or maybe a month, I, th- I wouldn't be surprised if we see the same sort of offensive from Ukraine, maybe in southern Ukraine, where they try to push and take back territory. Because the weaponry that the, that the United States and NATO has given, the sort of last round of it, really is, is weapons that are meant to to go on the offensive, to be aggressive, to try to push Ukraine back. And and I think there may be a couple reasons for that. I think the Biden administration may be reading the writing on the wall and realize that they're not going to be able to continue to fund Ukraine indefinitely, that they're starting to see a, you know, a, a decline in domestic support for Ukraine. I think they're starting to worry about whether there could be some cracks in NATO support. So I think what we're seeing from Biden is saying, let's, hey, let's get some more offensive weapons to Ukraine in the hopes that they can go on the offensive and start to, to take the initiative to Russia. So I think that's why the next month or so is going to be really fascinating to watch what happens on the ground in Ukraine. And I I agree with you, though it does seem that 
what we're doing now seems to me less like, oh, my gosh, you guys been at this for a year. Let us really, you know, give you extra boxes of ammo and a few more extra guns so you can just get this sucker done. But it seems to me that that's what it should be. Instead, oh, Russians are getting ready for a spring offensive. We better ramp up our support because we don't want Ukraine to lose. But we don't really seem to want to make Ukraine win either. Uh, you know, do you think it is a shift? Do you see a shift in thinking that we are now going to supply this country with what it needs to win this war? Or is it just, oh, Russia's getting ready to ramp up. We better ramp up, too. It feels like it's, it's just it's, a, a higher level stalemate to me. No, there's there's something to that. And I would say that it's it's an incremental increase, but it is not a dramatic one. And there are voices in the foreign policy community and the defense community who are, who are making the argument you just did to say uh, that, yes, we've increased. We're sending tanks. We're sending more long range missiles, but that we have to double or triple that. Like This is the moment, the decisive moment uh, for Ukraine to push. And so the United States shouldn't just, you know, give, you know, another 10 billion. It should be 20, 30, 40, 50 billion. Right. That this is the moment. Um, now, I think what Biden is, is playing is he's thinking about not just the battle localized in Ukraine. He's also thinking about the interaction between the United States and Russia. And Biden is much more cautious than I think other voices in the United States right now. Um, he is reluctant to do anything that would provoke Putin and potentially create an escalation of the conflict. Now, what's going to be really fascinating is, you know, in history, we'll look back at this moment and, and maybe Biden is right. Maybe it is it is useful to be careful and incremental and that ultimately uh, Russia is going to lose this war and the safe way is the best course of action. Or it's possible that we look back at this moment and say it's a missed opportunity, that this would have been the moment to dramatically escalate the conflict. And even if it upset Putin to send in dramatically more offensive weapons, and I think that would look like more tanks, um, you know, give them some some planes and air power, more drones, all of that to take the battle to Russia. Then it's it's something that we probably won't know until a little bit further down in history. But it's a it's it really is such a pivotal moment right now. Well, it seems to me that we were kind of hoping uh, that if we just held out long enough, that maybe there would be some sort of overthrow. Somebody would oust Putin from office one way or the other. Um, and and I think it's gone on long enough now that that uh, we see that that isn't if that isn't going to happen or it isn't going to happen anytime soon. So now we are faced with actually helping these people win this war since the Russian people aren't going to do this on our behalf. And I was talking to some people who said that, you know, I see all these reports um, or, you know, Russian of uh, Russian families about to have babies are going to Argentina to have their babies to get away from Russia. Men of uh, of draft age are trying to claim sanctuary in Finland and other surrounding countries. You know, uh, there's been a lot of purge of the journalism community. And one person I talked to said this is exactly what Putin wants because the people are left who are left are the people who have been drinking the Kool-Aid, who believe everything he says. And those nasty little rabble rousers have uh, have all left. Do you see it like that? 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a perfect description of what we're seeing right now. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands have fled Russia. Uh, the opposition voices have left because they know they're they would be targeted. Um, and, and those who have remained are, are quiet, right? Because you know that if you're an opposition force in Russia right now, uh, that he's going to detain you. So so I think Putin is safer now than he was a year ago, um, because like you said, because people have fled uh, because he's cracking down on any dissent. He controls all of the media outlets. So he is crafting and continuing to shape a narrative which suggests that it is the United States who is the aggressor here, that he is defending Ukrainians and defending Russians, uh, that that he that the Russia is the good guy and the United States is the bad guy. Um, and yeah, so I think he is he's very safe and secure. Now, we should say that the military strategy he is using and deploying right now is brutal. I mean, he is basically throwing Russians into the meat grinder. So even though he's safe right now, it I don't know what that means six months from now, a year from now. You know, how long will Russians continue to allow, um, you know, that society be thrown into war? It's it's possible there'll be pushback in the future. But right now, I think he feels very, very secure. Sadly, I think you're right. Um, professor William Muck, political science professor William Muck from North Central College. He and I are going to take a break and we're, we're going to come back and we're going to mix China into this discussion when we come right back after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away. 773-763-9278. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking with political science professor William Muck from North Central College. We've been talking about Ukraine. And before we um, go back to our discussion, we have a caller from Buffalo Grove who wants to talk about Ukraine, particularly the nuclear weapons situation. Alan, go ahead. You're on with me and Professor Muck. Uh, hello, Professor Muck. This is Alan. Uh, something's been bothering me for a very long time about about the war there. The Russians... Uh, have made incredible threats against Ukraine. They have threatened to wipe out their culture, even genocidal talk about destroying all the people. So my question is, I know that Ukraine, you know, they have Chernobyl there and other nuclear plants. They also have their own versions of cruise missiles. Why can't Ukrainians, if the threats are so terrible, if the war goes so bad, why can't the Ukrainians take a lot of that incredibly radioactive material at Chernobyl, load it up onto cruise missiles, and threaten the Russians with sending them toward Russia, going to the east? And those missiles, all they have to do is just crash or explode in the air. They could make all of western Russia a desert. And this really isn't being talked about, and I wonder if... It's even irresponsible for the Zelensky government not to prepare such a program if they are facing a genocidal annihilation. So I wonder what you think of that. 
Well, the danger in that is that doing that, that would essentially be a dirty bomb, right? So they would be creating some sort of, you know, chemical nuclear, something, something dangerous, and it would violate international treaties to do so. Um, it would also be a war crime. And so here, and so the why that's really important, if we step back and think about part of what Ukraine is doing is making a, a legal argument to say what Russia did was an illegal invasion of Ukraine. So that is the number one war crime. That's, you know, the, the actual invasion. But secondly, how they fought this war is, is also a war crime. So they've engaged in war crimes, crimes against aggression. You brought up the issue of genocide. I think there's an interesting legal argument to explore as to whether Russia is actually engaging in some sort of genocidal violence as well. But if Ukraine were to engage in a bomb like that or a tactic like that, they would suddenly lose the legal and moral argument. They would be no different than Russia, that they would also be engaging in in unjust and illegal uh, action. So I think Ukraine has to be very careful about how they conduct their war, right? They want this to be portrayed as Russia is the one violating the rules of war. They are the aggressor. They are the one that needs to be held accountable by justice afterwards. And so they have to make sure that they are following the rules. And I think that's that would be a one big deterrent to doing something like that. Okay, but if I can if I can pick up Alan's argument, I think what Alan is saying is, yes, that's all true and that's all well and good. But if what you are facing is your own annihilation, what do you have left to lose? Yeah, You're going to worry about your re- reputation after you've been wiped from the face of the earth? Right. No, that, that's an interesting point, right? Now, but I think if we look at the conditions on the ground, uh, Ukraine has been very successful at repelling Russia, right? So Russia has really been only been able to, to take a small territory. Now, if... If with this next offensive, if they are able to be more successful and it looks like they could not only topple the, the, the government, but take control of all of uh, Ukraine, you might see an evolution in tactics. I think they would still avoid using uh, like a dirty bomb because I think that's it's hard to control. It would also affect the Ukrainian people. But I think you could expect to see more of an asymmetrical attack. Right. So thinking about um, if Ukraine ever were to fall to Russia. Then Russia would be facing an insurgency, uh, basically, you know, an asymmetrical attack. Uh, and, and that's also really, really messy for Russia. So so I think there are other tactics before they would have to get to that type of scenario that could be more effective and still consistent with international law. Thanks for that call, Alan. That was really interesting. I also want to talk about China because, you know, this I think it's the director of the CIA has been saying very publicly recently that he's pretty sure that China is going to start supplying Russia with drones, equipment, uh, some kind of lethal force. And, um, you know, President Biden keeps saying that would be a mistake. What's your sense of what's going on and what might happen here? Wait, this is really interesting. And throughout the Ukraine war, um, the U.S. government has revealed a lot of information. You know, in the past, you and I talked about that the, the U.S. government rarely releases any intelligence. Uh, but prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the U.S. intelligence community released a lot of information saying that Russia was going to invade. Uh, and so they've been pretty spot on over the last year and a half in terms of the information they're releasing. So I think we have to take this as a really credible piece of information. I, I 
I struggle with understanding why China would want to do this. Um, because right now Russia is a pariah. They don't have a whole lot of friends. Um, and it's, it's an interesting development to, to see China say they want to embrace more deeply, uh, with Russia in what is, is inevitably going to be a losing proposition for Russia. Um, I think it suggests that China has basically had enough of diplomacy with the United States. And that we should expect to see more forceful, more confrontational, more antagonistic actions. Um, I think it also suggests that that China might want to make uh, the war more complicated for NATO and the United States uh, to support Russia, to make it more difficult for Ukraine to win this war. So I think there's there's a lot to unpack, but all of it is bad news for the relationship between the United States and China. So you think this maneuvered, whether it's to send drones or whatever to Russia, is China's way of saying, you know, back off United States. We don't like, you know, the things that you're doing, because from what I understand, I mean, obviously, we're very economically tied to China. If we have been able to hurt Russia with sanctions, I mean, wouldn't it be a, a, a degree worse the pain we could bring to China with financial sanctions? Certainly. Like the United States could could impose sanctions on China that would be very, very painful for the Chinese economy. The only difference, though, is China could also reciprocate uh, and, and also hurt the U.S. economy. That's the that's the downside when you have this idea, you know, this complex interdependence between the two economies. So the United States, we do. I mean, obviously, we've, we've engaged in some trade wars with China over the last two to five years. Uh, but China is, is a big enough economy where they can also reciprocate and take, you know, take hit hit the United States economy. So I think there's there's a reluctance to start doing that aggressively. Um, I think a lot of this, it sounds crazy, but I think a lot of this comes back to the spy balloon. I think I think China is responding to the U.S. response to that and saying, we're, we're frustrated. We're, we're angry at what we perceive to be an overreaction. Um, and I think this is our way of expressing that displeasure and our broader sense of the crumbling of the relationship between the United States and China. So it is, it's really sort of fascinating to see how quickly that relationship is soured seriously they're embarrassed because of their balloon and now they're they're throwing a tantrum over ukraine the <laughs> this this is I, you know here's it's if we step back a little bit uh prior to the whole spy balloon debacle uh Anthony Blinken was supposed to take a big trip to China and the whole idea of that visit was to reduce tensions and so I think China was thinking like we were hoping to to move to a better place uh then then the United States shoots down the spy balloon and then shoots down a whole bunch of other things so I think they're frustrated now hopefully this is just a short term thing right hopefully uh that cooler heads prevail and and that, you know, China also decides it's important to reduce the temperature. Um, but I think this action of saying that they might provide lethal aid to Russia is a it's a really, really big deal because the Biden administration has been very clear that that is that's a no go, that if they do that, that fundamentally changes the nature of the relationship. So if China's willing to take that risk, it suggests that the relationship is really, really in a bad place. And how much of this has to do with Taiwan? I mean, oh, I've, you know, I, I've read that uh, they're going to they're going to make a move on Taiwan in 2024. That's the that's the date when it's when it's happening. And even if it's a blockade of, of Taiwan rather than a military invasion, because they figure with the presidential election will be paralyzed. That's 
By all accounts, that's when it's happening. Did you know that, William? Yes, no, Taiwan looms over all of this, right? This is really important. And I think thinking about both Hong Kong and Taiwan, right? So over the last five years, uh, China has basically been able to take control of what's going on in Hong Kong and, and, and squash out much of the democratic elements that were in play in Hong Kong. And so certainly they have sights on Taiwan next. And so that's why this stage of the relationship between China and the United States is so important, right? You have to find ways of having productive engagement, about, you know, instead of, of resorting to military solutions, having diplomatic solutions. So, yeah, I think we're, we're entering a really tense and dangerous situation. I, I still think we're not on the doorstep of war just yet. I think that's still a little bit further down, but, but these signs, these steps that China are taking suggest that they have a much more nationalistic, much more provocative approach to the United States. And that is not a good development. We uh, have a caller who has a question for you. I think it uh, harkens back to Scotland, which we talked about in the first half hour we had together. George is calling in from the south side. Uh, go ahead, George. You're on with me and Professor Muck. Thank you, John. Uh, Professor, I was just wondering if you could make an evaluation. Uh, Scotland is small. It has fewer square miles than the state of Illinois and has a population roughly equivalent to that of Cook County. I mean, is that significant and substantial enough to be um, viable as a sovereign state, or is it just too small? It's it's a really really great question, uh, and I think it's when you think about the European context, you you do get smaller states, um, you know, that aren't uh, the same size as the United States. So I think it is possible, but you're absolutely right that this is the conversation that is likely taking place among the Scottish population right now. What are our economic and political interests, and how are they served by remaining a part of the United Kingdom, and how are they served if we were to leave the UK and rejoin the European Union? Right. So let's think about the economic benefits of that. Let's think about the political benefits. Let's think about the security implications, because if Scotland uh, pursues independence, then suddenly they have to think about defending themselves. Right. Um, so all of those things are at play. And I'm guessing some pretty smart people in the Scottish government are thinking about like long term are the economic benefits of trading with the European Union. Do those outweigh uh, the benefits of trading within the United Kingdom, right? So these are all variables that are at play. And and it's it's hard to know where where they'll end up deciding, but I'm sure these are things that they're thinking about. Well, thanks for that call, George. And again, if they need more territory, I say we give them Florida. <laughs> uh, you know, it, I'm I'm okay with that in so many ways. Professor Muck, it is always a delight to talk with you about what is going on in the world. Thank you for spending so much of your time with us today. Thank you, Joan. I always appreciate the conversation. We are going to take a break for news and guess what we're going to do when we come back. Yeah, there is actually, actually, there is some national news I want to share with you, but we'll get back to local politics right after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. One of the best savings rates in America is another reason banking with Capital One is the easiest decision. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. and member FDIC. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. We are three hours away from our election special coverage. 
in, in addition to Patty Vasquez and Tita Jackson and me, you're going to be hearing from a lot of uh, newsmakers and politicians. Uh, we have LaShawn Ford and Williams, uh, Tiffany Waldron from the uh, tribe, Max Bever from the Board of Elections, Greg Hines, Pat Quinn, Tony Fitzpatrick, Amea Powar, Scott Stantis from the Chicago Tribune, among others, uh, who we will be discussing politics with tonight. A couple of news items that I wanted to share before we take a quick break and uh, and start talking to some of our people out in the field. Um, the Food and Drug Administration, it was announced today in, in the Washington Post that you know how we've been doing these COVID tests at home, which is great, but let's face it, for pretty much... You know, unless it's a, you're trying to see whether or not you have COVID or you're pregnant, there aren't too many at-home tests that you can just go to the drugstore and buy. Well, the FDA now says it has authorized a combination test that is not only going to check you for COVID, it's also going to check you for the flu, and it is to be used at home. It's uh, it's the same thing. It's that glorious nasal swab that we have come to know and love so incredibly. Uh, and instead of the usual like 15 minutes to develop for COVID, I guess this test, as it is created now, is going to take about 30 minutes. But, you know, when you have a cold or you're you're have a horrible cough or a sore throat or you think you have a sinus infection these days, People really question that. The last time I thought I had a sinus infection, I had COVID. And, you know, Ray, a couple of weeks ago, had a terrible cough. He finally went to the doctor, got a couple of tests and a chest X-ray. He didn't have COVID, but he had pneumonia and the flu. So, you know, these days with RSV and pneumonia and flu and COVID, when you get sick, whether your symptoms are bad or, or easy, you just don't know how seriously to take it, whether you need to stay away from people, how you need to behave in public, or even if you should be out in public. So this is going to be a huge step forward. Um, supposedly, it's going to be able to be purchased without a prescription. For some reason, they're saying you have to be at least 14 years old to buy one of these, um, but it's called a COVID-19 and flu test. And uh, the reason that it is coming to us is because the FDA has decided, because of these wacky times we live in, to grant emergency authorization to the company, which I believe they say their name, Lucyra, uh, is going to be putting these out. So I personally will be buying these <laughs> when, they, when they come out. Um, they've been granted emergency, emergency authorization. They're clearly something the company has ready to go. So hopefully it won't be too much longer before they show up in our pharmacies. Wouldn't that be nice? So here's what we're going to do. We have a bunch of people from CPT out in the field tonight, a, uh, a host of helpers. And um, for part of the next hour, we are going to be checking in. Obviously, there are polls aren't even closed. There are no returns. 
But a lot of times at these various political headquarters, staffers are hanging out, volunteers are hanging out, supporters are hanging out. And sometimes by talking to them and getting a sense of their mood, you can you can get a real feel for how they think their candidate will do tonight. So let's do this. Let's take an early commercial break right now. <clears throat> and uh, when we come back, we are going to speak with our good friend, George Bliss, who is over at Vallis, Camp, Paul Vallis Campaign Headquarters. Um, Paul Vallis is... Um, He's over at uh, on Kinsey Street uh, tonight is where he's going to be hanging out a little bit later. I'm sure he's not there now. So let's take a break. We'll get uh, some time for politics right after this. Hi, this is Patty Vasquez, host of Driving It Home right here on WCPT. Now that we have an extra hour together, we have more time to cover the important stories of the day, and I always look forward to hearing from you. Let's talk about what's happening to our democracy and what we can do to help each other. I'm so grateful for your support, as well as our sponsors, Kids Above All, European and U.S. Car Service, and the Monaco Brewing Company. Patty Vasquez, weeknights 5 to 7 on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Joan Esposito Show, live, local, and progressive. Brought to you by Fazio Insurance, an independent insurance agency serving residents and businesses in Will and DuPage counties since 1953. WCPT is going to be out and about tonight. In addition to some of the folks who I just mentioned we were going to be chatting with, some of the elected officials, board of elections officials, just longtime Chicago observers, we are going to be out at uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's campaign headquarters, um, Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia's head- campaign headquarters, Brandon Johnson's campaign headquarters, uh, Dr. Willie Wilson's campaign headquarters, and, of course, uh, the man who is considered by many to be the front runner, uh, Paul Vallis's headquarters. George Bliss is out there now to tell us uh, what's going on. Hey, George, how are you? Fantastic, Joan. I'm at uh, Paul's headquarters, uh, West Loop, here about South Jefferson Avenue. Quite a few people in the building today and many others out working the polls. Now, I was just talking to Bob Praviti. Bob is one of the campaign directors here. Joan, this is kind of astonishing. Uh, if you remember, Mr. Vallis ran for governor 21 years ago in 2002 against Governor Blagojevich, who, of course, later was sent to federal prison. So that was a close one. Paul got 34 percent in that election and Blagojevich edged him out along with Roland Burris. So amazing, 21 years ago. And, of course, who could forget 2019, four years ago, Santia Jackson and you in the studio talking about Lori Lightfoot going against Tony Preckwinkle. Paul was in that election as well, but was knocked out early in the rounds as other people were involved in that election. So, Yeah, that, that field actually going. makes this field look a little smaller. As at one point, I believe... There were 14 people back in, in that race. Was that not right? That's approximately right. It was Bill Daly, Jeremy Joyce, all kinds of people. And, uh, yeah, it was a crazy one. But uh, Paul did not do quite well in that one at all. So what a stark contrast between 
2019 and 2023. It's amazing in four short years, isn't it? It absolutely is. And, you know, uh, George, <clears throat> I've heard people say that part of, well, as we, all, as we both know, a lot of politics is timing. And uh, Paul Vallis, while he is a Democrat, tends to be a very conservative, a more conservative Democrat than some of the others in the race. And mm-hmm. people are looking to New York City where there was um, there was one um, woman who led a, a city department who was very well thought of and really was believed to have a shot at becoming the next mayor. And yet New Yorkers chose Eric Adams, a much more conservative uh, sort of person. And some people are saying that the same sort of thing might be happening in Chicago. What do you think, George? Yes, exactly correct. You know, some of the other people here in the campaign office have also compared uh, him to maybe Mr. Bloomberg, who was a moderate, you might call it, a Democrat, and the same thing, but he uh, did not win. He had billions of dollars and couldn't get over the top. So, yes, your analogy is very good. It's hard to say who is what, moderate, conservative, liberal. Uh, I've kind of thrown those labels away because it doesn't mean much to me anymore because the the items on the agenda are all over the map these days, Joan, as you know. Things have changed 2023, all kinds of new agenda items spoken all the time out there that didn't even come up 20 years ago. So it's a new day, as we say. You know, a little bit earlier in this show, I was uh, talking to Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who wanted to remind people to get out and vote. And I told her that, you know, the Board of Elections is saying, uh, has been saying for days now, that this mayoral runoff could be undecided for hours, days, possibly even weeks. And she seemed... She seemed to not put much credence in that. And she was like, well, I certainly hope there's a decision by tonight or by tomorrow at the latest, sort of like implying that somehow the Board of Elections wouldn't be doing their job if they couldn't get this done. Uh, what's the feeling at Vallis headquarters? Are you, is anybody there expecting to know, you know, three hours after the polls close that it's over? Well, I don't know if it's three hours, but they certainly do not want to expect Arizona, right? They, they <laughs> one of those. Yeah. But, but you know what? In the years that I've studied this, the weather has a huge, huge effect. If it's snowing and raining, less people are going to come out, especially seniors. It's been a beautiful day today, so I believe the numbers, I don't have them right in front of me, are going to be relatively high. They're never good enough, as I listened to you earlier. People just don't come out a third of the voters that are available. We need more in this country to get democracy going. But, you know, be that as it may, it's a decent day. Thank God for that. And we should have enough votes to get them counted by later tonight. Is there much media set up there at Vallis headquarters? There is across the street. They're outside. Uh, They're not going to let them in? Well, not at this moment. As a matter of fact, Joan, uh, this headquarters on South Jefferson, later on, the uh, the night will move to West Kinsey. Uh, oh, that was the address uh, I had, was 838 uh, West Kinsey. 830 West Kinsey, which is a, another public place. So, yeah, he's got two locations going, and uh, there's people all over the place. It, it's, it's a heck of a day. I've been running around the city, and I see a couple lines around it in the South Loop waiting to, to vote. So that was a good Really? Thing. Yes. People people lined up outside the polling place because, you know, the Board of Elections has been talking about, you know, all of the 
increase in early voting and mail-in voting. And I was kind of wondering if anybody was going to show up today. Well, I heard your earlier broadcast about if you get in line by 7 o'clock, you're in. So yeah. you folks listening to the CPT, get in line. Don't press the issue. Get in line by 645 so you can vote. So uh, it's going to be great. But, again, if you're in there at 659, you still get the vote. That's very important to remember. So uh, I think there's going to be a heavy turnoff starting right about now. <laughs> so when are you planning to move over to the Kinsey address? About 6 o'clock. I'm here with uh, one of the campaign guys I mentioned, Bob Praviti, and they're packing up. There's posters all over. There's a lot of literature being brought over there. So I'm ready to go over there and find a parking spot and get inside. And, of course, looking forward tonight to seeing Tita, Joan, and, of course, Patty Vasquez, your show, starting <laughs> at 7 o'clock. I'm Has anybody at the campaign headquarters? I'm oh, sorry, George. I was just wondering if anybody at campaign headquarters has given you any idea when Paul might show up. I heard one person say approximately 830. But again, okay. I get in stone, but approximately at 830. So we'll see. Yeah. What yeah. Um, it's um, it's it's going to be it's you know, it would be wonderful for everybody involved if we could get a firm decision tonight. Because think about it, George, if we don't know who's in the runoff, even if Paul does as well as the polls have been predicting, let's say he comes away with enough of the vote that we absolutely know he's going to be in the runoff. Lori Lightfoot, Chewy Garcia, Brandon Johnson, they have been running neck and neck. If there is no clear cut decision for a while, the three of them have to continue to campaign, whether in not even knowing for sure they're on the ballot. Yeah, I don't know if you call that the doomsday scenario, but can you imagine if two, three, and four are just tens of a point different and they, they want to go and re-vote and re-look at the votes and recount? We will have that in Arizona situation, which I hope we don't, because that was a circus out there, you know, that's still going. But uh, let's cross our fingers that there's a decisive vote tonight for number one and number two, and we move on to the final final uh, back in the next couple months. Well, at least we know that none of the candidates running to be the next mayor are going to carry Lake us and say, and say, no, I, I, Brandon Johnson or, or Chewy Garcia, I did win. I, I must have won. You just, you've hidden the votes. The machines changed the votes. Um, I mean, I can't imagine living in that kind of chaos day in and day out. I don't understand how the people of Arizona tolerate that kind of nonsense. But, you know, I guess some people look at the people in Chicago and they think we're crazy, too, George. <laughs> well, people in Chicago love politics like no other city. I've studied it for years since college, and there's nothing like Chicago on Election Day. It's just amazing. Everybody comes out and talks about their neighborhood, the 77 neighborhoods we have in this beautiful city. And uh, we're going to see what happens tonight. Definitely some history will be, will be made. That's for sure. Yeah. It's um, – and – if Mayor Lori Lightfoot does not make the runoff, she'll be, what, the first mayor in about 40 years to be uh, shown the door after one term. Now, who was that? Was that Jane Byrne that 38 years ago that was one term? And- you know, I'm old, but I'm trying to, I'm, I haven't hard time. I think it was. I, I think she was the last one-term mayor. Well, you think of that, 38 years, my Lord. It's a long time, of course. You know, Mayor Daly was in, what, 24 years? His father before that, 20-something. That was a 40-year run-on, right? And then mm-hmm. Mr. Emanuel, Mr. Emanuel and then Lori. So you think about it, there's only been 
about four people in the last 50 years. Amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. We don't like we don't like to change our politicians, you know, for better or for worse. We get used to them. But uh, this may prove the exception to the rule. I mean, God knows, you know, I would never tell anybody to count Lori Lightfoot out. If we've learned anything, George, we've learned that she's scrappy and she is going to be campaigning till the last possible second for every possible vote. Well, as you know, I came from a social media background. I was in the technology world in Silicon Valley for many decades. And this social media has literally changed everything in everybody's life. I mean, I'm watching every Twitter, every text, uh, every communication. It's changed everything, especially for young people. So let's see how it affects the elections long term. Will the new candidate every four years? I mean, what's going to happen here? Social media has changed the world, John. You can never underestimate that. Yeah. And, you know, not that we have any doubt that we are a world class city, but I usually keep a monitor in my in my office with CNN on just, you know, I want to make sure just in case some big story breaks that I I don't miss it. Um, But they are um, uh, CNN has been repeatedly going back to the Chicago mayor's race and uh, talking to some folks about, you know, who they voted for. And um, uh, it's uh, it's the whole world is watching, or at least the whole country is watching. Um, I'm waiting for our, our cohort, Mr. Jerry Riles, to report into Lori Lightfoot's headquarters. As you know, he's over there now, and the media is already assembling over there. So it's going to yeah. be a barn burner. It's gonna be good. It, it absolutely is. Well, uh, having covered a lot of different election nights, George, uh, I wish you uh, a fun, exciting evening and really good free food. Oh, you got it. And everybody <laughs> listening, don't forget. Yeah, I'll go for the free food. But listen, tonight, tune in to Patty Vasquez, Jonas Zito, and Santita Jackson. You'll never have a better broadcast than from our, our <laughs> studios here on the northwest side. And you, you forget the big stations. Stick on CPT. They, they've, got, they've got the facts down. They've got it going. That was an unpaid endorsement from George Bliss. I just want you to know that was not planned. It was he was not prompted. It was a completely nope. spontaneous endorsement. George, thank you so much for um, being out and about tonight. I know I will be talking to you as will Patty and Santita repeatedly throughout this evening. So uh, thanks. Thanks so much. And thanks for being here. Uh, my best to everybody at Heartland Signal. See you later. Thank you. Uh, George was right. After we take the next break, we are going to see if we can track down Jerry Riles, who is going to be at the Lightfoot campaign headquarters. But as I said to you earlier, um, some of the campaign headquarters, uh, for instance, uh, Steve Lessman is going to be covering Chewy Garcia, and the campaign told them that they're not letting anybody in until six o'clock tonight. So there's there's going to be um, uh, a few of our reporters who are out and about that we won't be able to hear from till a little bit a little bit later. But um, we are going to continue our coverage of Chicago's mayor's race, the aldermanic races, and I don't know if we will see any results for the local police councils. There are 22 police districts in Chicago. Every one of those districts is going to vote 
for three people to be on these newly created police councils. These councils were originally envisioned as organizations led by civilians to have some kind of serious oversight of police. The way it has actually worked out is these local police councils are going to be more sort of a a liaison. Uh, they're going to talk to the cops. They're going to talk to the communities. They're going to share information in both directions. The police council members will also be nominating people for another board that is going to have um, more oversight of the police department. But again, um, progressives have have complained that there's that these organizations have no real power. They can recommend they can suggest, they can report, they can have conversations, but they can't make any decisions. That power is uh, still going to stay in the city council and in the mayor's office. So a lot of progressives are very disappointed in the way these police, local police councils have evolved. But if you live in the city of Chicago... You probably have to vote for a new alder. You definitely have to vote in the mayor's race. And however many candidates are on your ballot, you vote for three to put on your local police council. Okay. We are going to uh, take a break when we come back. Hopefully, uh, Jerry Riles was able to break into Lori Lightfoot's campaign headquarters. Whether or not it's open, we will talk to him right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We're getting ready for our big election night special, which is going to be beginning at 7 o'clock tonight. Santita is going to kick things off for us. Uh, Patty Vasquez and I will also be participating throughout the evening from 7 to 10. We have a number of CPT personnel out and about at various uh, mayoral headquarters, though we are also going to try to keep an eye on some of the more interesting aldermanic races as they take place throughout the city of Chicago. Uh, a little earlier today, <clears throat> I talked to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She uh, said that she'd gone to Manny's Deli. But for those of you who don't know, that's sort of a political tradition on Election Day. Don't ask me why. But everybody goes to Manny's Deli. It is the place to see and be seen. And uh, she made that pilgrimage today. She spoke briefly with me, and then she was going to get back out and uh, and get out in the neighborhoods trying to get make sure everybody goes to the polls and trying to get those last minute votes. Our very own uh, Jerry Riles is out at Mayor Lightfoot, Mayor Lightfoot's campaign headquarters and uh, joins us now. Hey, Jerry, how are you? Joan, how are you? Doing fantastic. And uh, it is Election Day, Election Tuesday here in this great city of Chicago. And uh, I'm outside of Mayor Lightfoot's uh, 
campaign headquarters right here at the state in Erie at the Mid-America Carpenters Regional Council building. And uh, it is pretty early. Um, the polls will be closing at about 7 o'clock. Um, I had a chance to talk with some representatives from uh, me and Lori Lightfoot's uh, campaign, and they expect people to start to come in uh, just after 7 o'clock with dignitaries from uh, local aldermen, uh, congressmen, and some other uh, business-type folks should be here. And they're expecting a, a big crowd and a, and a, a, a boisterous crowd at about uh, 8.30, 9 o'clock in hopes that uh, the polls will be closed and the votes will be in, and Lori Lightfoot would... Uh, more than likely square off against uh, Paul Vallis in a runoff in, on April 4th. Did um, any of the people you spoke with tell you who they think might show up tonight? I know Tom Tunney's going to be over at Vallis headquarters. Who's going to be with Lori? Yeah, they didn't necessarily provide a list of uh, the possible dignitaries that are expected to show up, so um, we definitely have to keep you posted on that. But, again, uh, they're expecting uh, probably uh, Congressman Danny Davis, who was at her rally uh, last uh, Saturday on the west side. So you can expect that he should be here. And, again, of course, some of the uh, the aldermen uh, who are representing and, and backing you know, the mayor are expected to be here as well. But uh, we don't necessarily have a list of names at this time. So are you just settling in? This is going to be your spot tonight, right? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a good location, again, on the corner of State and Erie, uh, downtown Chicago area, and uh, it is quiet outside. The only people that are around are uh, people such as myself and the media and all the, uh, the major networks are out here as well. So you can expect ABC, NBC, uh, Channel 7, CN, and, of course, Fox are uh, in here. Most of them did their live hit at about 4 o'clock, and so we're all just uh, hanging around and, and just waiting for – uh, you know, time to pass by as uh, we get closer to 7 o'clock to see what happens uh, in this historic mayoral race here in Chicago. Uh, just out of uh, curiosity, what reporters have you seen there so far? Um, Gaynor Hall is here with WGN Channel 9. Um, uh, Craig Wall from uh, uh, Channel 7 is inside as well. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Dana Karloff for uh, Channel Two is here, so um, you know the big the big hitters are definitely here. Uh, that's that's kind of why I was asking that, Jerry, because a lot of times in a newsroom, you can kind of tell wh- uh, which candidate a newsroom thinks is going to be the winner based on based on who they send where. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they they're here uh, for sure. Um, but again, they're they're in anticipation to see what's going to happen. And Joan, I did have a, an opportunity to talk to a few folks uh, prior to coming on with you. And uh, the the feel, the vibe that I get is that it is uh, it's kind of tense. Um, you know, everyone's kind of hoping that Mayor Lightfoot uh, definitely uh, is the uh, the second candidate for the runoff coming up. But it it, it still seems to be a toss up between herself, uh, Chuy Garcia, and, of course, Brandon Johnson. So uh, it's a little tensed around the area as far as what people are speculating with the uh, Lori Lightfoot uh, outcome, but um, they're optimistic and they're hoping that, you know, she is in that runoff against Paul Valley. I, uh, I mentioned this a little earlier when I, when I spoke to her. I said, you know, sort of like, sort of, I sort of like, I know you have a day job, but what are you going to do if it isn't decided tonight or tomorrow? Or as the Board of Elections has said, it could be days 
in worst case scenario, it could be weeks before we know who the two finalists in the runoff are. And um, she got a little she got a little testy when I said that. And she was like, well, they better have an answer. You know, you know, if it, if not tonight, certainly by tomorrow, like like they can't leave us hanging. And I, I don't think really it's up to them, Jerry. Uh, you know, there are so many mail in ballots that have to be counted. And as long as a mail in ballot is postmarked as of today, it gets counted into the mix. So people might be saying, well, why is it sometimes then an election is called? Well, if you if you have, you know, you know how many mail-in ballots you have left to count. And if two candidates are so far ahead that the number of ballots yet to be counted couldn't possibly make a difference, then you can call the race. So it doesn't mean we have to wait until every final ballot is opened. We might uh, get a feel before then, but... Then again, we might not. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think we, we hopefully we're not in for a long night and, uh, you know, a long uh, couple of few days. But, you know, it, it is a I speculate that it is close and it is going down to the wire. And uh, I heard the interview outstanding job with the mayor earlier today as I was uh, heading down here. But um we're, we're, we may have to be patient because it is such a tight race and we're talking about you know, the four top uh, front runners sort of mm-hmm. and, 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 and Garcia and Johnson and, of course, the mayor. So, yeah, I know she may not uh, want to have to wait around to see what the results are. But it, it, with this early voting, you're absolutely right, Joan. It might come down to, you know, the number of votes that are counted simply for the fact that it's so close. And it, it, it's almost up for grab for those top four uh, candidates to well, don't worry, Jerry. We'll send over a sleeping bag, and you know you can find a you can find a soft spot on the carpet to just roll it out tonight. But thank you. Uh, we are going to be talking to you repeatedly throughout the night. So uh, thanks for joining us now and uh, letting us know about the scene at Mayor Lori Lightfoot's headquarters. Thank you so very much, Joe. We'll uh, we'll keep you posted if anything develops uh, between now and. Uh, at the end of the night, we certainly we'd be on top of it. And uh, as far as whoever's coming out dignitary-wise, we'll definitely get them on with uh, yourself, Santina Jackson, and, of course, uh, Ms. Vasquez. So um, CPT is on top of it. But Mr. George Bliss did an outstanding job with Paul Ballas campaign. And uh, we're getting off to a good start. So looking forward to talking with you later on tonight. Thanks, Jerry. We look forward to that, too. And... Um before we go to break, I want to share with you last last week, was it Friday? You know, time is a very, it was last Thursday, Thursday of last week, I had a, a longer interview with the mayor and I asked her um, one thing that I didn't get to, to share on Friday. I asked her about the criticism that even though she's accomplished some great things, that she's just too abrasive she doesn't know how to get along with people. And uh, people have said, you know, Tom Tunney was one of our big supporters and said that he just got tired of it. Susan Sedlowski Garza was one of her lieutenants and said, I can't take it anymore. And um, the the argument is that even if you want to accomplish great things, your temperament can sometimes get in the way. And that certainly has been something that that Lori has been accused of. She's been accused of just being too abrasive. 
to be a politician at that level. And I asked her about that. Here's what she had to say. The narrative out there, Joan, and uh, you know, as a woman uh, in a leadership position, um, we're always going to face that criticism. We're always going to be viewed uh, by with a different lens. But here's what I would say. If that narrative was true, then we would be in paralysis. We couldn't get anything done. Yeah, I'm tough. I think that's what the voters uh, wanted. But I'm also um, somebody who has delivered over and over again. It was also pointed out in the media today that Laura did an interview. And, you know, Rahm Emanuel, by all accounts, uh, is a very tough customer himself. Though Tom Tunney would say that at least Rahm followed the general political rule of criticize in private, praise in public. And that has not been something that Lori's done. But, you know, Rahm Emanuel was on the cover of Time magazine, Chicago's tough mayor. And Lori Lightfoot said, you know, I'm a tough mayor, too. But she said, I would never get that kind of treatment. I would never get those kind of accolades. She said, because she is a woman, especially a woman of color and a woman of the LGBTQ community. Um, Before we go to break, I also wanted to share with you, I asked her um, whether or not she was the perfect person to go up against Paul Vallis, because a number of the people who trust me enough to tell me how they're voting in this mayor's race, it's come down to they either like Paul Vallis or they want to vote for whoever they think can defeat Paul Vallis. So it's not like... People love Chewy. They love Brandon. They love Lori. They love Paul. It's more like the people who love Paul love Paul, and everybody else just wants it to be anybody but Paul, so they vote for who they think is the strongest. And I asked her if she was the candidate to go up against Paul Vallis. She answered me. She also got a few swipes into Chewy Garcia. Listen to this. The answer is clear. It's absolutely me. And there's no question whatsoever. I will beat Paul Vallis and send him into permanent retirement. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You look at the the ones that are um, in striking range. So um, Chewy Garcia. Chewy Garcia, unfortunately, is a great disappointment. He clearly decided, after he lost in 2015, if you can't beat the machine, join the machine. He made a series of unsavory bathroom deals with now disgraced, indicted former Speaker Mike Madigan and defending him at a time when everybody knew that he was under federal indictment. Chiri Garcia would be the Trojan horse that brings cronyism and corruption to City Hall. He's knocking on the door. Don't answer. In uh, Mr. Garcia's defense, he was asked about his relationship with Mike Madigan when Mike Madigan was Speaker of the House here in Illinois. And he said, and I think we all know this to be true, he wanted to get some things done. And in Illinois, when Madigan was Speaker, you worked with Mike Madigan if you wanted to get something done or you didn't get anything done. And, you know, so he was sort of like, I'm not going to I'm not going to apologize for it. It was what I needed to do for my constituents, and and I did it, which I think is um, about as fair a response as you can make to that criticism. One more quick thing, since we want to spread the love around. Um, also, um, as part of that answer, which went on and on and on, Mayor Lightfoot eventually segued into um, trashing Brandon Johnson and telling people why she would be better than Brandon Johnson. So in the interest of fairness, let's play that clip too, Andy. I got 800 million reasons why 
Brandon Johnson should not get to a runoff or ever be mayor. Number one is $8 million is the amount of taxes that he wants to impose on top of hardworking men and women in this city. He wants to tax what he calls the rich, but his taxes would impact anybody making over $100,000 or more. And to put it into context, that's 34% of the teachers at CPS. That's untold numbers of police and fire and other city workers before we even get to the private sector. Uh, Brandon Johnson isn't better for Chicago. Brandon Johnson is bad for Chicago because he will drive businesses out of the city. And with them, they'll take those jobs. They'll drive people to the unemployment line. And I fear for uh, a Brandon Johnson, if he's able to impose the level of taxes that he wants, he's going to drive the city into recession. Okay, we've now um, wrapped up the political portion of this broadcast. President Biden made a pretty significant speech today, talked about what he has accomplished, and he talked about his budget and the economy. We're going to take a break, and I'm going to share some of that with you when we come right back after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I mentioned a moment ago, President Biden made a speech today. He uh, looked back on his two years in office. And he also talked about his budget. Now, remember, we keep a calendar here, and we'd like you to keep one along with us. Uh, President Biden is supposed to be revealing his new budget. Let's write it all down. March 9th, Biden budget. Okay. Um, we're, uh, we're going to be able to take a little bit of a breath in March, celebrate St. Patty's Day. And then, of course, April 4th, we are back, back, back to the uh, ballot box. Not only are we going to be voting, most likely, a runoff election here in the city of Chicago, you know, and not even just for mayor. It's possible that some of the aldermanic races might be in a runoff. Some of the aldermanic races are very crowded. It's going to be hard for somebody to get 50 percent plus one. Uh, and also... We will be looking at Wisconsin. Those two candidates, the very conservative and Janet Protasiewicz, uh, the Democrat, are going to be vying for one seat on Wisconsin Supreme Court. And uh, who wins that seat is going to determine the future of Wisconsin. And I, that is not hyperbole. Uh, hyperbole. It is. It is actually the way these things work out. Gerrymandering, a woman's right to physical autonomy. Voter suppression, all this stuff is going to be decided by the Wisconsin Supreme Court that right now is in a conservative uh, liberal tie. And whoever wins this election on April 4th is going to break that tie. Anyway, President Biden, uh, he went on at length to give us Joe Biden's greatest hits, kind of what he feels that he is most proud of, what he has accomplished in his first two years in office. Listen to this. Two years ago. 
When I was sworn in, the economy was reeling and the pandemic was raging. We lost over a million people. Hard to believe, but over a million people. And our health care system was at the breaking point. And all, all the health care workers here remember better than anyone those dark, dark months as the number of COVID deaths kept rising. Hospitals had to have, have patients in hallways literally setting up tents in their parking lots in a situation where every, because everything was full, every bed was full. That's what we're up against when I took office. We immediately got to work. We turned it around. I signed into law the landmark American Rescue Plan, which provided the resources to get COVID-19 under control. Our economy back on its track. And many of you worked around the clock to get people vaccinated against COVID-19. We went from 3.5 million people vaccinated when I took office to 230 million fully vaccinated today. We made vaccinations available to all Americans with a plan based on equality. Many of you went into communities that have been ignored in the past. We went into public housing areas. You went to places where they didn't usually go to make sure that everyone, everyone had equal access to this life-saving shots. And it worked. We came through, but with a terrible cost, as I said, over a million people died from the virus. In addition... We expanded health insurance for millions under the Affordable Care Act by making it easier to sign up and by making it cheaper to get better health care and affordable care, saving families $800 a year. Where I come from, $800 matters. I've said this before, and I will say it over and over again. President Biden has accomplished more in his two years in the White House than I have seen from just about every Democratic president president in my lifetime. And that includes the ones who had Democratic majorities to work with for four years. I think he will go down as one of our most effective presidents in history. Now, um, he also talked about his budget. It's going to be unveiled in all of its glory on March 9th. But he talked about looking ahead to the budget and what he wants to do. Listen to this. On March the 9th, I'm going to lay down in detail every single thing, every tax that's out there that I'm proposing, and no one over 400, making less than $400,000 is going to pay a penny more than taxes. But lay it out by March 9th, everything, and what we're, what we're going to cut, what we're going to spend, what we're going to do. Just lay it on the table. And I've invited them to Republicans. They should do the same thing. Lay their proposal on the table and we can sit down and we can agree, disagree. We can fight it out. When I introduce my budget, you'll see that's going to invest in America, lower health costs and protect and strengthen Social Security, Medicare, while cutting the deficit more than two trillion dollars over the next 10 years. But by the way, I want to make it clear. I'm going to raise some taxes. If any of you are billionaires out there, you're going to stop paying at 3%. <laughs> Not a joke. The idea that a billionaire, we used to have 600 or so in the United States of America, now there's 1,000. The idea that they pay at a rate that is lower than the rate of a police officer, a school teacher, a nurse, is bizarre. You're going to see that people making less than $400,000 a year, as I said from the very beginning, will not pay an additional single penny in any tax. 
Well, that lets most of us out, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, so you know what? I think it's going to be, I think the Republicans are going to be up in arms because the one thing they do not want in this world is the rich to be taxed. And I, um, you know, we're going to see. He spent a lot of years in the Senate. President Biden knows how to negotiate. We shall see where this ends up. Um, but I have faith in him. He has, um, he has done well. Dark Brandon rules. <laughs> uh, we are going to be shifting our view back to uh, local politics. There is an election. Yes, there is an election. You can still get out. You have till seven o'clock tonight to vote. You're going to be voting probably for an older person. You're going to be voting in the city of Chicago for a mayor. And you are going to be voting for three people to sit on your local police council, a new creation. We are going to uh, try to keep an eye. You know, the Board of Elections said a lot of these ballots are mail-in ballots. So it might be tricky getting results. But we have um, we are tied into the Board of Elections and we will bring you the numbers as uh, as we get them. And uh, Patty Vasquez, Santita Jackson, and I are going to be holding down the fort with a bunch of really fascinating guests. So if you um, can't listen to us on the radio, get your computer out. Hit uh, listen live on the WCPTA20.com page and uh, join us this evening. That's going to do it for me. Uh, Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next, and then we are going to kick off the election fun after that. Be nice to Patty. Stay safe. Have a great evening. See you a little bit later tonight. Good night.